walks off the stage. I did this to her first service, but um, she has some news. Something happened this week? Mm, my parents got back from Spain. She got engaged this week. Isn't that great? And I've known Katie and her fiancé since they were really little, and they've been dating for five years, and it's about time. That's all I'm saying. I love to worship uh, with you guys. Uh, you know, uh, you, you may know that I sit through three services, and uh, I, I love the second service. If I could get you to just come to first and third as well, that would be great. During the sermon, you can listen to an iPod or doodle or uh, play on your iPad, whatever you'd like to do. You know, it's interesting to note that while men are supposed to lead their families, we are most often playing catch-up. What do I mean? Well, Mother's Day was established by Anna Jarvis in 1908 to celebrate her own mother and was actually declared by Congress to be an official holiday six short years later in 1914. First Mother's Day, 1908. So a year later, 1909, in Spokane, Washington, Sonora Dodd heard a Mother's Day sermon, took one year for it to become a sermon, and thought it would be great to honor her father. Her father was a Civil War veteran uh, who had raised six children as a single parent. She, she talked to her um, pastor the following year, 1910, and proposed June 5th. Her father's birthday would be an appropriate day. However, he and other pastors felt like they didn't have time to prepare sermons. Please note the importance of Sunday sermons in establishing national holidays. So it was pushed back two weeks. And the first Father's Day was the third Sunday in June, two, two full years after the first Mother's Day. Well, it didn't gain much success, interest at first. So Dodd tried again in the 1930s. This time she got some trade um, organizations to help, you know, the ones who manufactured tobacco pipes, ties, and other traditional gifts for dads. President Wilson and Coolidge tried unsuccessfully to get Congress to pass a bill um, recognizing Father's Day as a national holiday. Congress defeated both of those attempts. It wasn't until 1966 that President Lyndon B. Johnson signed an official proclamation only that year, by the way, designated the third Sunday in June as Father's Day, again, just for that year. Finally, finally, President Nixon signed it into law, 1972. It only took the men, fathers, 58 years to catch up with the mothers. Now, if you forgot that it's Father's Day, not to worry. I found some suggested gifts for dads on a website this week that I thought I would share with you. I only share this first picture this was the first one in the series of pictures because I thought the smiles were awfully cheesy. <laughs> Next, the personalized beer holster. I mean, would you really wear that? That's awful. You don't like that? How about a Fanatics Pro Toaster, $39.95? If that's too expensive, 
How about a mini burgers grill basket? Again, only $19.95. Now, I put this one up there because the caption reads, does your dad love to grill but hate the work? <laughs> yes, it's exhausting. <laughs> the mini slider grill basket cooks nine burgers with one flip. I just have one thing to say. Where have you been all my life? <laughs> this next one, how about the picnic backpack? That looks more like a Mother's Day gift to me. <laughs> how about, uh, just a couple more, how about a monogrammed brander? Please notice the picture. This gives you the opportunity to brand your meat. There is something wrong with that. <laughs> Last, how about a golf three-piece barbecue tool set? I only put that up there just to point out that in this set of pictures, every one of them had to do with food. Just saying. Whether both days, Mother's Day, Father's Day, uh, are so-called hallmark holidays, commercialized holidays to sell flowers and jewelry, tobacco pipes and ties and barbecue stuff. It is appropriate to honor fathers and mothers um, on this day. After all, the Bible tells us to do so. We saw that a few weeks ago, the beginning of Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother so that it may be well with you that you can live long on the earth. In our study of Ephesians, it's been a few weeks now, you may remember that we are in the middle of the household code where Paul gives instructions about the duties of various members of a household. He gave us, he's been giving us three pairs, remember, wives and husbands, children, parents, slaves, and masters. I'm really excited about slaves next week. We already talked about the first, first pair, wives, submit to your husbands, respect them, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Then we got to the second pair. Children, obey and honor your parents. I, I guess it would be appropriate today to talk to children about honoring fathers and mothers during this now 40-year-old national holiday. We already did that, which brings us to our text this morning, most appropriate, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, fathers, talking to you. Do not provoke your children to anger. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parenting is both a wonderful and difficult responsibility. We cannot approach the role lightly. There is tons of material available on the topic. You can read books. You can go to conferences. You can turn on the radio. And learn how to focus on your family. And while those resources are all very helpful, I didn't consult any of them. My desire is simply to look at the Word of God. See, much of what we do, we learn from helpful resources, maybe from observing our own parents, which may or may not be helpful. Most of us kind of just did it on the fly, OJT trying to figure it out, but we are not left without the wisdom of God on the topic. Now, it's interesting that Paul wrote several verses to wives, even more to husbands, several even to children, but only one verse to parents and actually fathers. So we actually need to kind of tear this verse 
apart to learn what it's saying. One verse this morning. Don't worry, I can do that. (laughs) There may be no other role that is as demanding and fulfilling at the same time. To, To succeed... To succeed can bring unparalleled joy, and to fail can bring unparalleled heartache. Now, I want to pause right there for just a moment, because I just talked about success and failure in parenting. And I want to say to you, parents, you are not ultimately responsible for the way your children turn out. They are responsible for their choices. Some of you need to hear that on Father's Day. Some of you have beat yourselves up for years. Some of you have had spouses beat you up for years. If I had only done this, if I had only said that, and while that may be true, there is no such thing as a perfect parent, even you. Our children are responsible for themselves as adults. Every one of us could have done a better job. But when they stand before God, it will be him or her before God without you. There are some principles that we can learn this morning that will help them along the way. I want to encourage you this morning, no matter how good or bad a job that you've done, there are some principles that we can learn. What is success and what is failure? Paul tells us. He addresses the topic of parenting, specifically speaking to fathers from both a negative and positive perspective. Again, failure and success. He starts actually with the negative It's kind of nice. That means we get to finish with positive. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Parallel passage, Colossians 3. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so they won't lose heart. Exasperate means to provoke them to anger or to cause them to be frustrated. And we need to understand that Paul wrote these verses at a time when fathers in in Greek and Roman and Jewish cultures were, were completely in charge. It was a very patriarchal society. The Roman world, uh, he had the right of uh, patria potestas. That is, it speaks of the father's power, meaning the Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in fields. He could punish them as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty. This is true of all three of those cultures. This power extended over a child as long as the father lived. Technically, the Roman son never came of age while his father was alive. He could be a town magistrate and still had to answer to dad. This absolute power existed from the time the child first entered the world. The child was born, it would be literally placed at the father's feet. If the father bent over, picked it up, that meant he accepted it. If he turned and walked away, it meant the opposite. He rejected it. And the child would be literally thrown out. Father had the right of life or death over a child. He had more power than a king over his subjects and a master over his slaves. 
So when Paul wrote these verses, it flew in the face of culture. There were, in fact, there are no exact parallels to this found in ancient literature. This would have been shocking. We've become quite used to Paul being shocking by now, flying in the face of culture. He says, fathers, in spite of societal law, in spite of what you've observed, in spite of what Dr. Spock says, in spite of cultural dictates, do not neglect your children, don't abuse them, don't expose them, don't provoke them to anger, don't even frustrate them. Now, while this principle of provoking, not provoking, or exasperating children applies to both parents, I find it very interesting that he addresses fathers on Father's Day. I think there are two reasons that he does that. First, fathers, as the head of your home, you have the responsibility to set the family attitude and tone. It, it's your job. I know there's the saying that goes out there, mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. It's your job to set the family tone. In the Greco-Roman and Jewish cultures, the responsibility for educating and disciplining children lay with the father. He is to set the pace. Secondly, fathers, we know this to be true. We have a sinful propensity to be overbearing, to be irritable and harsh. Fathers can exact very high expectations and conversely dispense very little praise. So Paul addresses us specifically and says, don't overdo it. Be balanced. Train, yes, discipline, we'll get to that. But don't crush your children. So what are some ways that we can exasperate our children, provoke them to anger. I shared this with you, some of these with you last fall during our marriage and family series. I think it bears repeating. First and most obvious is do not lose your tempers with your children. We can provoke them to anger by being inappropriately angry with them. Mothers, again, this is a general statement, seem to have a much greater patience with children than fathers. And while it may be true that parents on occasion, I mean that mothers on occasion lose their tempers, it seems that when fathers do, the results are more disastrous, more damaging. We need to understand lots of different ways to express our anger, guys. It doesn't just come in the form of temper tantrums, yelling, screaming, hollering. It can come in the form of abuse, excessive punishment, snide and sarcastic remarks, that's my personal favorite, all of which can be terribly destructive to children. Second way to exasperate our children is to place overly high expectations on them. Again, to be overbearing, to expect the unattainable, the unreachable, the unreasonable, to set the bar too high. Now, we do need to place expectations with corresponding consequences I understand that. But those expectations must not be unreasonable. We, we can do that, for example, through, through sports. You, you could have done better. And, and athletics, for, for, for many kids, is anything but fun, especially as they watch the parents in, in the stands. 
We may project undue expectations in academics. We live in a very competitive world where we wear what our children do, will our children do academically, their GPAs, their scholarships, things like that. We wear them as personal merit badges. We should push them to excel. We should discipline, the, discipline them to pursue excellence. We must not place expectations which are beyond their reach. Let me suggest another way that we place unreasonable expectations on our children. It's when we expect them to act in ways that we don't. Demanding they act in ways they don't see demonstrated in our lives. We expect them to treat us respectfully, but we are disrespectful and sarcastic to them. We put them down, frequently expressing our frustrations, our discontent, and our dissatisfaction with them. We expect them to treat their mothers respectfully, and we don't. We expect them to act certain ways in public. They don't see it at home. We expect them to act spiritual, especially at church, but they don't see it in our lives. We've heard this many times before. When it comes to children, more is actually caught than is taught. Third way to frustrate our children is the opposite of having unrealistically high expectations. It is to have expectations which are too low. What do I mean by that? To not believe in them. To deride them. To constantly tear them down. You know, words like, you can never do anything right. We should avoid words like never and ever. That's just a bit, that's not in the Bible, but I, that's just a bit of a, a, advice. We should avoid words like never and ever. You can never do anything right. You're a failure. You'll never amount, never, never amount to anything. Nothing is more de- damaging, demeaning to children than to have parents underappreciate and undervalue them. No matter what they do, it's never good enough. And soon, such children begin to believe what they're told, and they become underachievers. It is, after all, what we've expected from them. A fourth way to exasperate our children is to neglect them. This we know is an epidemic in our society. We speak of absentee fathers who abandon their wives and children. But I want to suggest to you that we can do that in more ways than divorce. In more ways than divorce. It can come through our overcommitment to work, our overcommitment to our own lives, our own hobbies. Statistics show, shared this with you once before, statistics show, depending on who you read, the average father, the average father spends anywhere from 30 seconds to a few minutes of meaningful conversation with their children every week. I didn't say day. Every week. That constitutes neglect. It is a Wonderful way, if you're looking for a way to provoke your children to boiling, seething resentment, that one works. Now, while I'm on it, um, our own uh, Pastor Scott Burns, youth pastor, uh, once took an anonymous survey of the youth dealing with relationships between the kids and their parents. One of the questions that he asked was, do your parents spend time with you in the Word of God? Do your parents have family devotions with you? And I want you to know that the answer was actually pretty encouraging. It was way above average. Here's the question. How would you answer the question? 
We could speak of physical abuse. We could speak of verbal abuse. We could speak of discouragement. We could speak of favoritism. I, I talked to some kids once who said, yeah, everyone in the family uh, knows that I, 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 I'm mom's favorite. Uh, she's dad's favorite. He, he's on his own. And the results were devastating. There are a number of ways to provoke them to anger. Fathers should weigh carefully the impact that they have on their children. I mean, let me just quote a couple of different authors' commentaries on this particular topic. This passage effectively rules out reactionary flare-ups. That means losing your temper. Overly harsh words, insults, sarcasm, nagging, demeaning comments, inappropriate teasing, unreasonable demands, and anything else that can be perceived as provocative. I'll give you time in case you want to write those down. Another one said, the apostle is ruling out excessively severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subject, listen, subjecting a child to humiliation, and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and sensibilities. That's enough for negative. Let's move now to the positive. Paul says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't exasperate. Don't, don't frustrate them. Instead, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, there are several key phrases and words, concepts there that we need to camp on. The word for bring them up, it's actually one word, bring them up. We saw in chapter 5 in speaking to husbands, and husbands in relationship to their wives. For no one, husbands, ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. That's the word. Nourish is the word for bring them up. Exact same word. The word means to tenderly care for your children. Bring them up through tender care. The word can actually be used of nursing them. The idea is that we nourish our children gently as we see them grow to full maturity. Let's say that again. We, we nourish, we cherish, we, we treat them gently as we bring them up. Where did we ever get this idea that it's the dad's responsibility to be tough on them? It's what we think. It's a dog-eat-dog world. Paul says to tenderly care for them. They'll face enough hardship in the world on their own. They do not need it from us. Listen to me. Our homes need to be a place of refuge for our kids, not a place of more harshness and undue criticism. The responsibility of the father is to nourish and provide safe haven for our children. And we do that next we bring them up through discipline. Now, that's, that's, that, that, that is an interesting uh, way that Paul put this together. Because, you see, the idea is to provide corrective behavior. We nourish them gently, tenderly, care for them through corrective discipline. You see, that's included. We all understand that children are born with a sin nature. We don't have to teach them how to sin. They know how to do that all on their own. And it's our responsibility to provide discipline that steers them away from sin, away from wrong choices, choices which satisfy their sinful 
fleshly desires. And, and, and why do we do this? Because we understand that this would be harmful for them. Discipline is actually a good thing. Being overly permissive, where, which I know is really popular out there, and being overly indulgent, never correcting them, uh, letting them blossom in their own personalities, whatever that means, you would not like my natural personality. You, you, you might you say, well, I hardly like your real one. I mean, your other one. You would not like my natural personality. It may not be good to allow them to do these things. If left uncorrected, their desires for wrong, for sin, grow. Let me, let, me, let, me, let me say it this way. It might be really cute when they're sassy at three. It isn't so cute when they're sassy at 13. The exact word for discipline here is, the, the, the exact word for this discipline is only used one other place in the New Testament. It's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11, which speaks of the heavenly Father disciplining us, His children. And He says this, all discipline, that's the word, for the moment seems not to be joyful. Right. But sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. You want your kids to live in peace and in righteousness, then it takes discipline. Discipline is correcting behavior. It is training them to know right from wrong, and it helps them to choose the right. The best way, I, I think, this is just my personal opinion, is to provide consequences for their choices. If they choose to do wrong, then there are corresponding consequences. There's punishment. If they choose to do right, now don't, don't stop with just the wrong. If they choose to do right, there is praise, there is reward, there is blessing. Fathers are, sometimes we, we fall short of that. We're quick to dole out punishment. We're not as quick to, pull out, uh, to pour out um, encouragement. We punish wrong behaviors. We encourage good ones. Let me also suggest those negative consequences must be administered in love, they must be consistent, and they must be appropriate. That is, the, the punishment must match the crime. Violate that. If you discipline in anger instead of in love, if you're inconsistent and you dole out harsh, excessive punishment, and you will exasperate your children and incite them to anger. As, pleasant, as unpleasant as discipline seems to them and, frankly, to us, we must provide disciplinary correction for our kids. To let them go unchecked is to ignore our responsibility and produce undisciplined adults. We all know the verse, spare the rod, spoil the child. The idea is if you do not discipline a child, the result will be a spoiled child brat. Walk through the grocery store and sometimes church, and you know what I'm talking about. And by the way, while I've quoted that verse, spare the rod, spoil the child, let me, let me suggest that there is a place today for corporal punishment. I know that we live in a society which gives all kinds of reasons not to spank, child abuse, all that will get you arrested. 
The Scripture speaks to loving, corrective discipline through the rod. That, that is, spankings must be administered appropriately in love, not in anger, certainly not abusively, but it is appropriate. In addition to nourishing them through discipline, we also bring them up through instruction. The word there speaks more specifically of verbal counsel, uh, which comes in the form of exhortations and warnings and maybe even rebukes. We not only steer them away from wrong behaviors, we steer them toward right behaviors in exhortations. We instruct them, notice, of the Lord. This has been true of all of these household duties that we've talked about. Wives, submit um, and respect as to the Lord. Husbands, love as the Lord. Children, obey as the Lord. Next week, slaves will obey as to Christ. You see, our, our commitment to Christ governs everything that we do, no matter what role we find ourselves in, no matter what hat you happen to be wearing at the time. Now, understand, this of the Lord refers to the whole process. We bring them up, that is, we nourish them by disciplining and instructing them, and all of this is to be done of the Lord, which means, fathers, we instruct them in the truths and principles of the Word of God. It is the father's responsibility to rear children in such a way that they will be trained to understand the essence of the faith and instructed how to live that faith out. Dads, it's our job. Deuteronomy chapter um, 6, which is a passage that we often read uh, during uh, our children dedications, says it very well. Listen to this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You, it's talking to all of it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. But it's not just for you. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be as frontals on your door, doorposts. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The principle is simply is this. The parent's responsibility is to pass to their children, the truths and principles of the Word of God. It is to so permeate our lives that it is everywhere that you turn. It is all over our house. It isn't just all over this house on Sunday mornings. If you, it's all over your house. If you leave the house, you talk about it on the way to where you're going. And so when you leave today, on your way to the restaurant, on your way home, on your way to grandpa's house, you talk about what we've talked about, the Word of God today. You talk about the Word a lot is the idea. How much? Well, Moses tells us two times. When you lie down and when you get up, meaning when you, when you sleep and when you're awake. That's when you talk about the Word of God. Now, this highlights a couple of more truths for us. First, it is primarily the parents' responsibility to pass their faith on to their children. I want to say to you, do not abdicate your responsibility to someone else. It is not primarily the church's job. It's not the pastor's job. It's not the youth pastor's job. It's not the children's pastor's job. It's not the Sunday school teacher's job. 
You have not accomplished your task by sending your kids to Christian school or taking your kids to church and sending them to youth group. All of that can be good, but all of those things should be seen as tools to help you accomplish your primary task of teaching your children. Way too often parents blame, they blame the, um, the church or the schools or their kids' friends for their own failures. Secondly, notice it is your responsibility, I've said it already, to teach your kids the Word of God. This is to be the priority. I want to say this very gently. It is to be the priority. Not math, not science, not English, not sports necessarily. Again, there's nothing wrong with any of those things, but they are not the ultimate priority. Yes, part of our responsibility is to prepare them to be productive members of society, which includes being productive members of society, okay, which includes being able to read and write, which includes being able to throw and catch a a ball, which includes being able to use Facebook. Okay, so teach them um, those things. I've said this before, but I'm concerned that in our focusing on the family, that that has been expressed primarily in education and extracurricular activities. And as a result, families are too busy to be involved in spiritual undertakings, although I would suggest all of that's supposed to be spiritual, too involved to be uh, involved in church, too involved to be in one another's lives. We're so focused on family activities and even feel spiritual about it because we're focusing on our family. And what is it in the process that we are teaching our kids? We're teaching our kids that the church is optional, and it's not. It is true that Paul told Timothy, for example, that physical exercise is of, is of some value. I've been recently criticized, um, and, and perhaps rightly, because I jump on the sports things, the sports thing every once in a while. I've been criticized of, uh, of being anti-sport. I, I am not anti-sport. I coached the, the, the ABF girls basketball team to victory. <laughs> and I had them memorize this verse. We would start every, every, every time around the word, and then I would run them for two hours, and sometimes I'd play with them. I spent the last three years running over Western North Carolina, going to lacrosse games, and I loved it. Not anti-sport. I'm, I am pro-Word of God. You see, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8 actually says, for bodily discipline, exercise, is only of little profit. That could be said positively. is of some value. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. There is some profit in in, in these other things. There's some profit in athletics. It's good for you physically. Uh, They teach good motor skills, coordination skills, good sportsmanship. They build strength and character. That's great. Lots of benefit in academic prowess. Can I say to you, I was very excited and quite proud that three of the five speakers at the Watauga High School graduation, three of the five, Speakers at the high school graduation w- went to our youth group. 
I was thrilled that a full 10%, 10% of the graduating class at Watauga High School was somehow associated with ABF. You graduated. Good. I'm excited. Godliness, being trained in the Word of God is profitable for all things, not only in this life, but the life to come. And so, don't provoke your children to anger. Don't exasperate them. Don't frustrate them. Bring them up. Nourish them through discipline and instruction. Do that through correcting behavior. Train them by discipline. Instruct. Teach them. Teach them to read and write. Teach them proper grammar. Teach them the multiplication table, if you know it. But on this Father's Day, I want to challenge all of us as fathers. Pour the Word of God into your kids. As much as you handle that textbook, as much as you handle that basketball, handle the Bible. The Word of God holds great promise, not only for this present life, but also for the life to come. Let's stand for prayer. Father, my, um, my prayer f- for us as a, uh, as a family this morning is to pray first for um, fathers, maybe some who have failed and, and have, have felt miserable about it. I pray that you would grant grace and that you would help all of us to redouble our efforts by the Spirit of God um, to be the godly fathers that you've called us to be. It's, it's never too late. And I pray for children here this morning who maybe have strained relationships with earthly dads. Pray that you would grant grace and that you would Help them to focus on you, our heavenly Father, who does all things well and who never lets us down. Help us today to honor dads and and moms and to honor children. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.